Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Disability Exchange, our podcast coming from the Iowa University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, or much more user-friendly, USED. Um, we're really excited to have um, our guest today, and we'll get to her in just a second. Uh, my name is Mike Honick. I am a program coordinator at the USED, and I would now like to turn it over to our Disability Exchange co-host to introduce herself. Hello, my name is Caitlin Owens, and I am a co-worker of Mike's at the USED, and I'm so excited to be here. Excellent. Thanks, Caitlin, and we are really excited. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, um, having the chance to really sit down and talk with our guest today. Um, she is Jen Wolf, who identifies as a disabled occupational therapist and an organizer of Upgrade Medicaid and Iowa Disability League. So Jen, welcome to the show, and you can help us kind of break down what some of those roles are. I would love to, and I've also been very looking forward to this conversation. Um, I go by uh, she, her pronouns, and a brief uh, image description. Um, I am a white female, chin length, a purple tinted dark hair, dark brain glasses, in a messy bedroom slash office, wearing a gray t-shirt that says, Public health policy, not politics. Ooh. Awesome. Talking our language here. I know that our listeners will be very interested to know about Upgrade Medicaid and Iowa Disability League. You know, clearly our, our focus is on um, disability. So while you're doing that, though, we'd, we'd like to, so, you know, giving us some description of, of those organizations, but also including why this is such a passion of yours would be really important. So I became disabled in 2003, although I wouldn't have identified as disabled then. Um, it's when you get an acquired disability, it's, I, well, I think anytime you, you grow into um, that identifier and like at a certain point, I became politicized by that identifier. So I had an ependymoma, which is a spinal cord tumor. Um, I was kicked out of grad school because of mental health issues. I had really bad uh, depression and just wasn't able to get out of bed to attend classes. Um, and just when I was ready to go back to school is when I was diagnosed with this spinal cord tumor that was probably partly causing some of the mental health because of the pressure and I wasn't having pain. So it was all literally in my head all that, mm. but it was from T7 to L2. Um, so a really long tumor, um, had surgery and went through rehab. And part of what helped me get through that is having the experience of being a patient while knowing I was going to go back to grad school for occupational therapy. And so it was actually, it's, it was very, very helpful, um, both as a patient then and as eventual therapist. So five years, six years into my OT degree, um, career, uh, I uh, had to get my first wheelchair through Medicare. And they said, even though I'd, I'd talked to wheelchair companies and they'd let me try all this ultralight chair that was really good for my shoulders and easier to use, insurance said, nope, you just need what will get you around your home. Hmm. As an occupational therapist, I went, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> and so I happened upon a scholarship 
to go to DC for us for a for a um, three day conference, four day conference where you got to learn about all the policies behind wheelchair policy, which is called complex rehab technology, and then have a day on the hill where you get to go visit all your congressional visits, and that empowered me in a way that even being a professional uh, healthcare professional that. I didn't feel empowered. I, I still felt in a lot of spaces, people just saw me as a wheelchair user. And in the, the advocacy space, I'm like, I have power just through my lived experience in creating change. So I got addicted, you know, healthy addiction. That's a very healthy addiction. Yeah. And got more involved. A, a gal um, who was an OT and a social worker uh, had created a group called Users First, which is uh, wheelchair users telling their stories on the difficulties of getting equipment. Um, that eventually got absorbed by United Spinal Association. And I eventually became the advocacy manager uh, for their grassroots um, efforts for several years and uh, got really, really sick doing both jobs. Now that I look at it, I think I was trying to prove something, mm. which I think a lot of us feel like we have to, to get any attention. Uh, and I paid for it. <laughs> um, I, I went septic, what, three or four times in a row and was um, out, of, out of business for about a year, year and a half. And around that time is when Iowa's Medicaid was privatized. And for the first time in the I don't know, eight years I'd been advocating, I started hearing from fellow wheelchair users, fellow advocates going, what can we do, Jen? We've got to do something. And um, it's all those forces combined that, that I think Tucker Cassidy and I were the first two to kick around the idea of starting a group. And uh, with their upgrade, Medicaid was born. Um, and well, I shouldn't say that. It started with an advocacy day through United Spinal um, Iowa chapter, and a lot more people than just spinal cord injury showed up and caregivers. And we had, even though there were only 13 of us wheelchair users that were there, uh, folks said that's probably the biggest amount of wheelchair users that had probably ever been at the Capitol. Oh, um, probably right. <laughs> that day, taking pictures on the Senate steps, one of the senators actually looked over us, not at us, and said, they're in my way. They just need to get out. They just need to move. And I'm like, that is what we're up against, is we're not even seen as entities where we can be communicated with. I'm like, that's what we're up against. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. And at the time, you know, you can't think fast enough. To, you're like so shocked that that would actually happen. Um, that. Uh, you just, now I would say, you know, um, I, my, it's my space too. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how we started. And we've just been growing ever since. And it's the, the Medicaid, you know, at first it was easy to be angry at the MCOs um, and managed care organizations and focus um, on them. But it's gone beyond anger <laughs> to organization. Um, and, and realizing that it's not just the MCOs, it's the fact that our, our state and its entities didn't really have policies and procedures and home and community-based services programs set up 
to protect folks with disabilities before the MCOs came in. Um, so the MCOs are doing what they're supposed to. They're supposed to be making money and making profit where they can. Um, so, but I, I think we're at a very unique time where we've built relationships with legislators. We've built relationships with state organizations. Uh, we've built uh, relationships now with DHS and with a mess with Glenwood and um, uh, other investigations, they, they know something needs to change. Um, and they're at least, it looks like they want to hear us and include us in, in decision-making um, and we'll hold them accountable. <laughs> um, we're, we're at the point where we've been using digital organization um, to do the outreach, to make this very, very wonky policy stuff more understandable to both folks with disabilities and general public. That's so, you know, I loved what you said about kind of, so it's been about six years since the MCOs came into Iowa and, you know, talking about kind of this evolution of like the beginning stages of the advocacy was really like a lot of anger and grief. And then, you know, and then it sounds like there was a lot of maybe discovery and learning like, okay, wait, maybe, the, you know, this problem sort of like is bigger than just the, you know, like kind of these companies and then kind of, you know, evolved into sort of like a relationship building, you know, kind of, um, you know, more action oriented um, phase, which is really amazing. I mean, and I just, uh, I don't know, I just kind of wanted to point that out that I, I think that's really cool. And it's great to hear that you feel like those relationships and that action is making an impact, you know, even though I'm sure sometimes it still feels really slow. Um, but that's cool to hear. There's hope um, where I think for a couple of years didn't feel that at all. And I say that from a point of privilege. Um, I don't deal with needing to need care every day. Um, that's a privilege, <laughs> really, when you when you look at it. Um, I can take care of most of my, my daily care things. That is a privilege. Um, so many folks out there are still dealing on a daily basis, wondering if they are going to have a caregiver show up or if they're going to call in sick or not show up at all. And that's neglect and abandonment. Um, and people are feeling it. I've been talking with folks across the country and um, Connie Arnold in California, she said, people are suicidal because mm -hmm. if the systems aren't showing that they, you know, that they have value in the fact of having adequate care, you know, so many people feel like a burden anyway with a disability, that that just feeds into that loop. And that's horrible. It's just horrible and unacceptable. Do you think privatization has led to some of the increased um, abandonment and lack of providers showing up? I mean, I know that's been an issue for a very, very long time, but how has privatization impacted that? I think it's exacerbated it um, just because low, low reimbursement rates and they have not changed. In fact, um, I think I can say this legitimately because Emily Ellers has said it in several spaces um, she's a disability rights lawyer, is that um, folks in court have said that the, the rates have not changed in five years. 
for caregivers um, mm. at all across the board. And the ones that get most, uh, the least reimbursement are those with physical, complex physical care needs. And so those are the folks that, and it's not that not everyone is impacted that needs care. Um, but those with physical, uh, complex physical needs are mm. the ones that are really, really, you know, they're being pushed back into nursing homes or, or just being neglected at a, at a level that they shouldn't be, which is hard. It's hard to see people suffering and it, it can be, advocacy can be re-traumatizing. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was, I wanted to ask you, you talked in your intro about, um, you know, kind of this like burnout you experience, you know, and so, and which is topic I'm really interested in. And, um, you know, so I'm wondering about kind of how you, you know, practice self-care and prevent burnout, you know, in, in general, but also specifically related to this, like really emotionally intensive advocacy work that you do that is, you know, also so personal. It's uh, learning in progress. <laughs> and I, I, it's, it's funny. I catch myself not practicing it and I'm like, it makes a big difference, but it's, it's gratitude and compassion. Um, I took a class from Dr. Ahmet Sood at a Mayo Clinic on resilience and it was a stress management program. And one simple trick, um, waking up in the morning before you do anything else, before you even open your eyes is giving gratitude to five different people or five different memories and going into detail of what those people looked like, the specifics of the memory and giving gratitude for those moments or those people. And it really only takes a couple minutes, but when I practice that regularly and granted I don't, and I should dealing with things that could potentially be traumatic or could spiral you into downward thinking, you can fend that off a lot mm. easier because we as human beings, our pain center, even when we're hearing other stories, our, our brains, our pain centers trigger just like it's our own pain. Um, that you have to kind of build up that bubble wrap, that kind of self-support of going, I'm going to give compassion and gratitude that that person is simply sharing their story with me. How huge that is, that they trust someone with their story. Um, because it's very vulnerable. It's extremely vulnerable and it's hard, but it's, it's the super secret superpower at the same time, I think, um, because it's those folks that can tell their story with impact and share those personal details, which are so hard that make the impact when we speak in, in policy places. I was fortunate enough a few months ago to sit in on one of your earlier, early meetings maybe shortly after the first of the year. Um, and there, I know there were some DHS uh, folks on the, on the Zoom. Uh, I think some legislators came in, but I do remember uh, one of the things that I was amazed at was how freely people did share their stories. And I think, you know, you have a gift for, um, for listening and making it okay to talk about those personal difficult issues. I, I just really... Um, I was really impacted by that town hall. And I will not take credit for that. I will take credit for just 
giving the space for people to feel comfortable because it's, it's a group of people that are willing to talk to each other and then they get comfortable sharing those stories. Yeah. And then we've had the marvelous Zach Meekum and Hannah Sawyer also did a, a storytelling workshop to help people give the tools to tell those stories with impact that we're, we're trying to provide the tools to people to be more empowered in telling their stories effectively and owning their own story. So it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm just sharing all my vulnerabilities and this is sucking my soul out to I am telling this to create change. That's great. And yes, Zach is marvelous. He's helping us with our uh, SOAR advocacy conference, the digital components of it. And that man has a lot of talent and he's a future guest of uh, Disability Exchange. Wonderful. He, he really, he really helped upgrade Medicaid, get the attention initially with all his, his help with the video campaigns and, and podcasts and things. Um, because I, I introduced you as an organizer with upgrade Medicaid and the Iowa disability league. Um, are those two movements? Are they one help straight straighten us out on that? That is a great question and it is still evolving. <laughs> <laughs> So Upgrade Medicaid was, it needed to happen, but it was also an experiment to see if we could get the disability community to talk to each other. We have been so siloed and and a lot of it has to do with funding. It has to do just with systems as they are that we don't have one entity that truly is led by people with disabilities in going beyond self-advocacy or individual advocacy. Um, because I, I want to give credit where credit is due. ID Action does a fabulous job. Fabulous. And we try to promote their work um, as much as possible. The thing that makes Upgrade unique is that it's community organizing, that we're trying to uplift together the multiple different identities within the disability community. And my hope is that in some form, it'll either be Iowa Disability League or Disability League-Iowa. Um, that will become a 501c4 where we are a lobbying agent for uh, folks with disabilities and we can endorse candidates that support disability justice, disability rights issues. That's my hope. Again, a lot of it comes down to funding. Yeah. Um, and so we've, we've been totally grassroots. Um, I've been funding this from my part-time job, um, with occasional fundraisers, which I'm so grateful for the folks that have believed in what we're doing, but yeah, this is totally grassroots. It's something new and different. Um, I took a digital organizing, uh, bootcamp from Beth Becker, who's in the progressive movement and have been utilizing her tools and her wisdom ever since in the efforts we've been doing. And it's, it's still growing. And we went through a huge restructuring this summer. Um, Kind of, we needed to get back to our basics, what our mission really is. And because we don't have the funding is where we're stuck with, I won't say stuck because we're still, we're so small that the upgrade Medicaid is enough work for us but we want to turn into something bigger and really start delving into disability justice, which is social justice issues because people with disabilities exist in every other 
group. <laughs> we are LGBTQ. We are Black, Brown, Indigenous, Asian, you know, every religion. And it shouldn't be such a stigma anymore because disability is part of the lifespan. And that's my OT kicking in. It's part of the lifespan. <laughs> and even the OTs don't get it. But working, trying to work in that space and trying to to get them to, to be part of the independent living and disability as a social model. I just have to say how exciting this is because I'm old enough that I remember a movement back in the early 1990s and it was called, it started out as being called the Systems Change Project and then later became the Systems Change Network. And it organized the opposite way. There was a, a, a actually it was a DD council grant that um, was designed to strengthen advocacy in Iowa and, and bring people from across the state together to advocate on particular kinds of issues. But of course, it was, since it was funded by the DD Council, we had to be very, very careful in terms of you know, crossing that lobbying line. So we had funding to bring people to Des Moines. We had funding to do regional retreats and um, trainings and all sorts of good stuff. Um, but unfortunately, when the funding went away, so did the organization. And so it's ironic to me that almost 30 years later now, we have an organization that is starting from the ground up. And so your biggest challenge, I, it's sounding like, you know, other than people's time is the money. Um, but yet without, you know, a one specific funding source, at least at this point, you've got a group that's holding together, not because of some grant, but because it's grassroots. And I, I am just so excited to see where this goes. Thank you for that. <laughs> that means so much. It because it it does it feels mind numbing sometimes when it just doesn't feel like we're getting anywhere. And and even though I have hope, I know it's going to take a lot of work and keeping the groups accountable to what they're they're saying. Um, and it's hard work. It's it, it it's <laughs> I've told folks it's it's like being a Simpsons person and just poking, 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 poking the sibling's shoulder just to annoy them, but keep reminding them that we're here, we're here and we're listening and we're going to keep annoying you. So what advice might you give to, you know, a listener of ours who maybe is like new to the advocacy world or isn't quite sure where to start or anything? Um, find an organization you feel comfortable with and where you can feel like they see you for who you are. Um, there are so many good groups, United Spinal, um, DD Council, InfoNet, um, the Brain Injury Alliance of Iowa, the Spina Bifida uh, group, all doing amazing advocacy work specific to disability, which is also needed. Um, just to get comfortable in who you are and like ID Action and InfoNet is the best place to go. Um, they have the best resources on getting started and plain language. It's really great and it's underutilized. And we're going to try to make a difference in, in that um, because I'm like, that's some of the, the work they do, the action alerts. I'm like, that's work I don't have to do. Yeah. Um, and yeah. they're doing it and we need to promote it. Um, and then when you're ready, the, the community advocacy, because um, it is it is different. You have to be pretty confident in who you are and where you, you are. And 
the biggest difference for me, which, which is a struggle because in the world of disability to get attention, a lot of times you have to be that kind of the, the glossiness of look at what I'm doing. I'm a superstar. I'm, I'm doing all these things. Against all odds. And yeah, you know, right. I saw the best comic the other day. Well, it wasn't the best. It was really horrible and but it was it was about you know how you go to the grocery store and oh it's such such an inspiration to see you out and you know if it's after an illness and you literally haven't been out for a year that's one thing but if it's a complete stranger telling you that you're an inspiration simply for being out of the house that's not so much of a compliment that's kind of a your biases are coming out. Right. An indictment yes. on how little they know about. And, and granted, people are trying to be nice. So I don't, you know, uh, people tell me all the time I'm speeding. And a lot of people with disabilities who use wheelchairs, that's offensive. But I'm like, it's because they don't know that I have a really ultralight wheelchair. that's so much different than a hospital transport chair. And so I educate them. I'm like, it's because I have a really good chair. Um, I digress. No, I find, I appreciate you saying that. I find those stories to be, you know, and they're like so perpetuated by media, you know, uh, you know, these stories of, you know, this student who got invited to prom or, you know, which is, you know, it's, it's really exciting for them, but also, you know, it just should be normal. Right. It should be normal. And I think that's where, you know, I know that there's been some discussion even within the Iowa disability league as you're evolving, that that's, that's a piece of what you hope to provide a vehicle for is to, is to do education. And I think that's, it's, it's so, you know, I, I thought maybe we're, we're in 2021 now, you know, that, I mean, I know there's always going to be a need for education, but it's still just about the time you think maybe you've kind of turned a corner. We're still in the need for some of the most basic kinds of education. We see it, you know, all the time in those kinds of interactions and media and all, all sorts of ways. But the last two years I've done a lot of, I I saw the worst discrimination of disability and black and brown community at Netroots Nation, which is supposed to be the most progressive headspace in the country. And I'm like, if that can happen there, there's so much work to do. And so I've been doing a lot of looking at civil rights movements at the LGBTQ movements And, you know, each one of those made great strides, just like the passage of the ADA. But then it seems like we go backwards so much before we make another step forward. This year, almost because the world opened up virtually and so many more people with disabilities across the country are talking to each other in that virtual space, it feels like we're getting to one of those movements again. In fact, I've, I've said it's, it feels like we're getting close to another capital crawl movement or moment um, because that's how the ADA got passed. People got out of their chairs and had multiple disabilities and crawled up the Capitol steps, which gave the press a great visual and it was enough press and the general society looked at that and went, Ooh, yeah it feels like we're getting close to that movement. And the best part about it is there's more people with disabilities who are talking about their disabilities in leadership places that has not existed before. Like Rima McCoy McDeed, the executive director of Nickel. That's huge, 
huge. And she's from Iowa, which is even better. Absolutely. No, it really is amazing. We've had, um, just within our, our youth, we hosted with the BD Council and Department of Human Rights and Access to Independence, a Youth Leadership Academy. Uh, last year, we had a grand total of six sign up, and this year we had 19. Wow. So, um, you know, just, and, and these are um, young people ages 14 to 21, I think, and we had all ability levels. We had one guy that was in orchestra in college and everything, and it was so cool to see some of these ideas. And we, we had a 17-year-old, I guess I'm digressing now, I'm supposed to be, but it's just so, I mean, there's so much potential. We had a, a young woman who's 17 that identifies with multiple, um, you know, with a disability and also um, socioeconomically disadvantaged and talking about how um, she volunteers for the food pantry because she says, we we've been there and sometimes we're still there. And yet she's taking her time out of her day to go be a community advocate and volunteer. And she's very, very serious and focused and now wants to get involved in other disability advocacy. And it's just so exciting, you know, to see this happening, Jen, like you said, with people with disabilities and especially young people, really. We, we just interviewed um, a young woman that's 35 and she's just got the passion all over the place, you know? So it's, it's, it's cool to see it, the transformation happening. And a lot of it's happening in the mid- Midwest. It's not, you know, coastal things. There's amazing things happening in Kansas and Iowa and Missouri. So I'm really, really excited to see what the next two to five years holds. I mean, it's nothing's going to happen fast, unfortunately. Um, if we could get this increased funding for HCBS, Home and Community-Based Services, from the federal government, that could be a huge piece, a, a start. Um, I've, I've kind of thought of things as a hierarchy, is if, if we can get the basic level, um, and, right, and what started things is people weren't getting adequate care in their homes. So let's start with that piece. Um, let's make sure there's more affordable, uh, accessible housing in Iowa is kind of the next piece. Then let's look at transportation and you know, then we can start looking at employment because if those people could have those basics, they could be more productive and it doesn't have to be work, you know, in, in the work. That's the biggest thing is productivity is being able to clean your house. Um, It is cooking food. It is raising a family. (laughs) It is volunteering. It doesn't have to be just work. Um, But so many people can't do that right now because they're unhoused, because they're living with their parents, because they don't have affordable, accessible housing. Like myself, I would love to be on my own. Not going to happen where I live right now. Um, But until people aren't suffering at a basic human level, I'm like, I can't, I I can't start fighting my fight. (laughs) That's next. So as we kind of wrap up here, um, we like to ask people to just tell us what would you like your legacy to be? Just a light little question to end on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want people to feel their own power, the, the power of their voice, the power of their lived experience and not in the society we live in. It's so easy to feel burdened or to feel like you're a burden, to feel 
you, you don't fit. Um, but we do, um, we, we fit in our humanity. The system just wasn't made for us. And the more we feel our power of owning the space that we're in, the more we'll get to be in those spaces, the more normalized <laughs> it will be. Um, and I just, I want more people to feel that way because there really is so much empowerment in, in doing um, advocacy work, whether it's self-advocacy, whether it's individual advocacy, whether it's community advocacy, and it, all of it is necessary. I want that's people to a, find their power. Yeah, that's, that is so awesome. That so, is. So needed. Um, we would like to ask a final, final question, and that is how, if people want to get connected to um, upgrade Medicaid, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, our website is down, so Facebook. Um, and it's Upgrade Medicaid, either that or contacting myself. Um, we do have a membership form. Um, we're working through Action Network, and so you can get on our email list. And then we are um, we have a Facebook for Iowa Disability League, too. And what the reason we have two separate, which is can be very confusing, is Upgrade Medicaid is sticking to Medicaid and caregiving issues. But there's a lot of other issues that we want to talk about and make people aware of, which is why we have Iowa Disability League. Like we've been doing things through Iowa Disability, like um, we got permission to show the recordings of the Crip Camp virtual camp from last summer. And we've been doing that through Iowa Disability League. Um, but yeah, it's, it's Facebook is our, our number one um, way to get a hold of us. Um, we are working on getting a website up and running. And we do have a PayPal account now for Iowa Disability League. All right. Facebook search for Iowa Disability League or Upgrade Medicaid. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jen. This was a just a fantastic conversation. I so appreciate and enjoyed learning more about you and the really, really incredible work that you're doing um, in the state. So thank you. So much appreciate this. And, and I just acknowledge that people have done so much of the work before me. And I'm, I'm just doing my, my cog in the wheel of getting uh, change happen. There's, there's so many people that have done work before me and that I'm honored to work alongside as well. So well, we're honored that you're in Iowa and that you're doing this great work. And we want to uh, echo Caitlin's thank you. And we also would like to thank all of our listeners to disability exchange and hope you'll join us again next time for another engaging guest. Thanks everybody. Thank you for joining us today on disability exchange. Disability Exchange is produced by the University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, which is housed at the Center for Disabilities and Development at the University of Iowa. Special thanks to Kyle Delvaux for the music contribution. <laughs>